You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 17th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 16.30 in Delhi, 14.00 in Gaza, midday here at Midori House in London and 5am in Mexico City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and a very warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson, and coming up on today's programme... The President will hear from Israel how it will conduct its operations in a way that minimises civilian casualties and enables humanitarian assistance to flow to civilians in Gaza. We'll hear an update on the humanitarian situation in the Israel-Hamas war and ask what will Joe Biden's visit to Israel actually achieve. Also ahead... The discussion demonstrates that the institution of marriage has not remained static or stagnant. But despite this, India's Supreme Court decides against legalising same-sex marriage. We'll have reaction from Delhi. Plus, we'll check in in Brussels in the aftermath of a shooting. That's all coming up on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The lorries are still queuing at the border between Egypt and Gaza. No aid has so far reportedly been allowed in. The World Food Programme now says food is running out and the UN has warned of a deepening humanitarian crisis. Yusuf Hamash is from the Norwegian Refugee Council, an independent humanitarian organisation which helps people forced to flee. Yusuf described the situation in Han Yunus in southern Gaza. Wherever you go, you will find people in front of bakeries, hundreds of people are waiting in lines, trying to, or even shops, trying to find anything to provide for their families and children. There is no way to withdraw cash. Even if you have in your bank account, you cannot withdraw. The ATMs are not working. There is no fuel. I need to mention that every house in Khanyuns is hosting another family and there is a lot of children. We are seeing people are under huge pressure. Everyone is stressed. There is People doesn't have space in their head to think like ordinary people. People are trying to think how to survive. Everyone here in Khan Yunus in a survivor mood. Also, it doesn't mean that there is no bombing in Khan Yunus. There is a lot of bombardment, but you cannot compare it to what's happening in the north and Gaza City. The world needs to interfere to stop this chaos. Hundreds of people are suffering on a daily basis. Every day, it's a daily mission for everyone to go to find things to feed for their children. There is no generators, there is no electricity. Also, if you have generator, there is no fuel. It's a horrible situation here. It's really horrible. I saw people who sleep in the streets. We never had homeless people before in Gaza. We are now half of the, the population is homeless. That was Yusuf Hamash, who's from the Norwegian Refugee Council, bringing us uh, an idea of what the conditions are like in Han Yunus in southern Gaza. Listening to that was Eric Goldstein, Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch Middle East and North Africa Division. He joins me on the line from Berlin. Good afternoon, Eric. Good to have you with us. Good afternoon. And do you have any more that, that can flesh out what the latest situation is from the region at the moment? I, I agree that uh, uh, inside Gaza there is a humanitarian crisis unfolding, uh, not only from Israel's massive airstrikes that have killed already uh, thousands, including hundreds of children, about 100 a day are dying, but also excess uh, casualties 
caused by the humanitarian situation, the lack of fuel, uh, the uh, uh, strikes on hospitals and ambulances. Uh, hospitals are having to make heartbreaking decisions with one ventilator uh, there. They have to choose between who is more likely to survive and take one person off the ventilator. Uh, this involves children. This is really about uh, a crisis that uh, is being brought about by the way that Israel is conducting its military campaign. Um, Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, the World Health Organization have all been very vocal in their pleas for more help and for a, a, a more gentle approach to the people who are, who are stuck in southern Gaza. What difference does your voice actually make here? I think that uh, we need to see world leaders, uh, starting with the United States, and I understand the president is due to visit tomorrow, to be much more forceful in uh, prioritizing the need for Israel to spare innocent civilians in this campaign. The deaths of thousands is the entirely foreseeable consequence of the way that Israel is carrying out this campaign. And the president of the United States or European leaders say Israel has a right to defend itself. They have to also say they have to do everything possible to spare civilians. And the statements coming from Israeli policymakers, Israeli leaders, makes clear that civilians are going to pay a heavy price in all this and that they're not going to do what they can to spare civilians in their going after Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and those responsible for the terrible massacres and hostage-taking that took place inside Israel on October 7th. A little earlier on Monocle Radio, we heard from Alison Kaplan-Sommer. She's a journalist, a reporter for uh, Haaretz. And she explained a little bit earlier on today what the Israeli position was from within the community. In Israel, there's less sensitivity of collateral civilian damage in Gaza than existed previously because Israel is really in pain and full of anger and grief over what's happened to thousands of its citizens. That was Alison Kaplan-Sommer there talking a little bit earlier today and talking about what's happened to thousands of its citizens, referring to the, the attack by Hamas on Israel last weekend, with still nearly 200 hostages being taken in into Gaza. Um, what balance needs to be struck here, Eric? I think that the balance needs to be a focus on protecting civilians in the way that this campaign is conducted. I th it, uh, of course, an attack such as took place on October 7th uh, leads to very strong emotions. People have suffered personal losses, deeply wounded. Uh, but this is also, unfortunately, dehumanizing the approach. There's statements coming out of Israeli leaders that the Gazan public, the civilian population of Gaza have brought this on themselves. They're forgetting that about half of the population of Gaza uh, is under 18. These are children. They did not vote for, for Hamas. They have had no say in their future, and they should not be paying a price for the acts of um, military groups in Gaza that have carried out these attacks on Israeli families. When you mentioned a moment ago the, the need for the U.S. President Joe Biden to be forceful in, in stressing the need to spare innocent civilian lives, when he is in Israel tomorrow, what 
genuine progress do you think he will be able to achieve? I think he can first demand that Israel halt policies like cutting off fuel and water uh, to Gaza and basic humanitarian, uh, basic uh, uh, staples, because these are causing people in Gaza to uh, basically, uh, it's, pre- it's preventing hospitals from functioning, it's preventing families for taking, from taking care of their children. What military purpose is served by cutting off water to two million people? It's hard to fathom. And I think these are very basic things that Biden can uh, publicly demand the Israelis to do uh, at the same time as supporting Israel in, this, in its grief and in its desire to put uh, an end to or to uh, hold accountable those responsible for the attacks on its own territory. Eric Goldstein from Human Rights Watch Middle East and North Africa. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. Last night, Brussels increased its terror alert level to its highest after two Swedish football fans were shot dead in the city. The man, believed to have been the gunman, was later killed by police. It's understood he'd recorded a message on social media claiming to be inspired by Islamic State. Well, Suzanne Lynch is Politico Europe's chief Brussels correspondent. She joins me now. Good afternoon, Suzanne. Good afternoon, Emma. Thank you for your time. You were in Brussels last night. What was it like? Yeah, we were here. Um, I'm here today as well. And last night news came in um, in the evening that this attack had happened in the Scarbeck area of Brussels. I was um, I was actually with some European Commission um, officials and I was at an event. And then, you know, you could see everyone looking at their phone. And what everyone was thinking was this had already happened back in 2016 when there were uh, two terrorist attacks in the city here, and that was the attack on the airport and the attack in the metro station. Um, so last night, it, it appeared that uh, this man shot dead two people, two Swedish football fans, and a third person was seriously injured uh, with reports that that was a taxi driver. Um, so the match itself was stopped uh, and the, the uh, terror alert, as you said, was raised uh, to level four. Uh, this morning, um, some of the schools in the city decided to close. I know at the European uh, Council, for example, they closed the press area. Areas that it was not open and a lot of people had been advised not to use a public transport. But things have developed here this morning with the news that earlier today, a police shot uh, the man they suspect as k- for killing those two people. Uh, he was shot and later died in hospital. How much of a shock was this to Brussels? Because you mentioned that the terror attacks in 2016, they were Islamic State militants. Um, 35 people died there. Was there a sense that Brussels should have been in better condition to prevent something like this from happening? Yes, I think very much so. At that time, I was here at the time, and there was huge um, inquiries and criticism of the police force here because Belgium uh, is a very kind of federalized system. You've got the different school system and different police systems um, across Flanders, Wallonia, and then Brussels, the city. Uh, so it came in for quite a bit of criticism at the time. Now, we are getting details of this suspect who is now dead. Uh, he was a Tunisian national, a 45-year-old who lived in Brussels, but had applied for asylum and unsuccessfully applied for asylum here. So questions being asked 
about how much the authorities knew about him. Um, even in the last few hours, a lot of Belgian media have you know, tracked down um, a mosque that he attended with some reports, and these have not been confirmed, that he was even uh, not allowed to go to mosque because he was so radicalized. So I think it's going to be a lot of attention now about what we know about this uh, This man who's now been shot and killed by police here. Was he acting alone? And where he got the weapon that he was used for these attacks last night, this gun he used. So I think a lot of uh, questions still to be answered by authorities here in Brussels. And what were the comments made by the EU Commission um, delegates at your event last night? Was there a sense that this was something that was a one-off or is this something that Europe needs to be more wary and keen of? I think, um, to be honest, there was a sense last night that this could be part of a broader uh trend and that was because of what had happened in France as well. We saw the stabbing of a teacher there. Um, but what we are seem, seem to be hearing now is that rather than a response to what's happening in the Middle East at the moment, that it could be, um, and one of the uh, ministers said this, the Belgian ministers last night, it could be more connected with the fact that Sweden itself as a country, it's had issues around boring, uh, burning of, of, of the Quran and um, the Turkey had blocked Sweden's membership of NATO. And so there's a whole free speech debate going on in Sweden. So it may be more linked to that rather than as a response to what's been happening in Israel and the Palestinian territories. And some of the ministers in the Belgian government have, have said that. Um, but at, at this point, I think there is a relief now, as I speak to you, that uh, this person has been caught uh, because all throughout the night there were raids and people, you know, the main news line was the fact that this suspect was still on the run. Uh, But now that seems to have developed and the suspect uh, was apprehended and, and has died. Politico, Suzanne Lynch there in Brussels. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Briefing. You're listening to Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. Let's have a summary of the latest news headlines now. Here's Isabella Jewell. Thanks, Emma. South Korea, Japan and the United States have agreed to set up a three-way security hotline after a meeting of their nuclear envoys. The summit in Jakarta comes amid regional tensions with China and North Korea. Donald Trump has said he would bar immigrants who support Hamas from entering the United States if he is re-elected in 2024. On a campaign trip to Iowa, the former president also promised to step up travel bans from what he called terror-plagued countries. Fiji will strengthen its defence cooperation with Australia. The Pacific Island nation has announced as its prime minister visits Canberra. City Veni Rabuka said in a statement that Fiji and Australia would forge closer ties in areas including intelligence and cybersecurity. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Isabella. It's 1914 in Beijing and the Russian President Vladimir Putin has arrived in Beijing to attend a summit marking the 10th anniversary of its Belt and Road Initiative. The initiative has both boosted China's physical ability to connect with the rest of the world and also its political influence. And this is arguably something that President Putin is keen to ally himself with as both Moscow and Beijing are positioning themselves as a counterweight to the US. Well, Tricia Craig is Senior Lecturer in Sociology and uh, political science at Yale NUS in Singapore. And she joins us now. Good evening, Tricia. Hi, Emma. Thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. uh, What reports have we got coming out of Beijing today from any of the opening encounters? Well, um, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. So this summit is a big deal. Uh, It's something that Xi Jinping, who 
brought the project into being in 2013, has made a cornerstone of his development program. And I think, as you mentioned, really the big news is the the presence of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, This is a rare instance of him traveling outside of Russia. He did arrive in Beijing today. And I think, you know, what we're looking for here is how much um, sort of is the message about uh, Putin and the relationship uh, with Russia, how is that being portrayed? How aligned with Moscow is Beijing? Um, Russia, it's not an official member of the Belt and Road Initiative or the BRI, um, but it has been certainly, um, has really depended on China as a lifeline given that it's been under sanctions. So I think the presence of, of Putin is really um, extremely um, important in the sense that he's the he's really the biggest international figure there um and so we are seeing um these two uh, countries working together to offer an alternative to the current western led world order tell us a little bit about how putin's presence is being viewed in beijing i mean you you, you described there the fact that putin is the is the, you know the biggest name in the room and but but also is not part of belt and road so is this and a desire by Vladimir Putin to find to place himself in the right room at the right time with the right people, or is this actually beneficial to China? I think certainly it is more beneficial to um, to Russia in in some ways than it is to China. Um, China is the sort of more important partner in that uh, in in that relationship, um, but I think. Uh, Putin's presence there, um, again, it's not just about the Belt and Road Initiative. I think this is taking place against the backdrop of the um, the Israel-Hamas war that's going on. Um, and this is another way for these two countries to sort of show that they're aligned uh, against or um, in, in a different way than um, the the West is, right? And so we're really seeing um, Russia and China lining up on one side of the kind of geopolitical um, line uh, to show their um, sort of solidarity together. And as Russia and China show that solidarity together, what role, what role does Belt and Road play in this, given the fact that at the start, when you know, a decade ago, when it when it started, it was very much an economic counterweight to the United States. But has it slowed down as China's economy has slowed down? Where where does it sit now? Certainly, the BRI has evolved since its inception. Um, as as you point out, it was started as an infrastructure initiative. The idea for China, which was really sort of coming onto the world stage at that point, it wanted to connect with Europe, Central and Southeast Asia, uh, and boost trade through land and sea routes, similar to the old old Silk Road. Um, it has had a lot of success. Um, I think it's undeniable. There have been over uh, 200 cooperation agreements, trillions of dollars uh, in uh, projects that has meant building lots of infrastructure all over the world, things like ports, railways, energy pipelines. Um, and it has allowed the Chinese to export a lot of its excess building capacity. You know, when we have all these projects, many of them are being carried out by Chinese firms. But as you point out, things have slowed. Um, it's not just, I think, the Chinese economy uh, has been slow to come out of the pandemic. Um, but I think some of the problems uh, with the initiative have come to 
uh, sort of dominate the way that we look at this. One criticism, for example, has been that, you know, countries uh, are possibly getting too indebted. There's a debt trap problem for some low-income countries. Um, countries like Sri Lanka, Zambia, they've become heavily indebted because they signed up for these massive infrastructure projects they probably couldn't have afforded otherwise. You know, that was not the original intent, but debt service has become a problem for some countries. Also, we've seen criticisms of Belt and Road um, along environmental impact grounds. Um, a lot of increase in greenhouse gas emissions, for example, uh, 250 coal power projects across dozens of countries. There have been criticisms about the destruction of fragile ecosystems um, with all this infrastructure. So I think many of Beijing's original goals were certainly achieved, but we're at a point where some of the problems are evident. Tell us a little bit about where that evidence is being manifested in terms of the international community's willingness to actually go to the forum itself. Yes, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, China has really played up is that there are delegates from around 130 countries attending. Um, strong participation, certainly from uh, Latin America, from Africa, but much less from the developed West. And in contrast to previous summits, um, there are fewer heads of state you know, more people at the ministerial level. So I think it is definitely a lower key summit, despite being the 10th anniversary, uh, than some of the past ones that we saw, for example, in 2017, 2019. So let's cast our... Um a, a, a crystal ball into the future and and wonder, Trisha, where we are in 10 years' time. I mean, what role will Belt and Road be playing then, do you think? I think what we're seeing um, right now is that China is kind of shifting its approach. It's addressing things like the environmental concerns. It has said it's going to focus entirely on clean energy and sort of cutting out the fossil fuel projects. I think certainly uh, across many of the developing uh, much of the developing world, there's a lot less appetite right now to take on these big and potentially very costly infrastructure projects. Um, and in the run-up to the summit, a white paper was put out by China that I think gives us some indication of where the BRI is headed. They're focusing more on what they say are the quality of the projects rather than the quantity of the projects. And they're concentrating on areas like climate change, technology, AI. So a move away from the big infrastructure to, I think, a, a more uh, more of a focus on technology, areas where China certainly has um, a, a lot of uh, development going on. Um, so it's a shift, but I think it's one very much in keeping with Beijing's goal of promoting social and economic development throughout much of the world with Beijing at the heart of that and as a as an alternative to a Western-led development model. Trisha Craig in Singapore, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle's free-to-subscribe daily email newsletters, the Monocle Minute and Weekend Edition, deliver headlines and a swathe of recommendations from our editors, correspondents and bureau. You can also browse a menu of radio highlights and Monocle films. Our weekend newsletters deliver great columns from Andrew Tuck on Saturdays and Tyler Brule on Sundays, cultural highs, media diets and far-off newspapers, recipes to cook at home. It's a fun take on weekend living. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute to be part of the conversation.
It's 16.53 in Delhi, 12.23pm here in London. Now, India's Supreme Court has decided against legalising same-sex marriages. It's left the decision to the country's parliament and it's being seen instead as a backward step for the country's LGBTQ plus community. Well, Lindy Prickett is our new Delhi correspondent. A very good afternoon to you, Lindy. Good afternoon. So just explain to us what the background of this story was. Well, over a dozen petitioners have argued that India's millions of same-sex couples should be granted the same rights as any heterosexual couple. Now, what rights? They wanted to have spouse status in matters of finance and insurance issues, but also inheritance and succession decisions, and even in adoption and surrogacy matters. The petitioners in the case have said that marriage is a bouquet of rights that the community is deprived of. But the five-judge constitution bench that's been hearing the pleas for several days refused to give marriage equality rights to the LGBTQ community in India. And there is a lot, a lot of disappointment. I think one of the interesting things in India is that it has quite a colorful and complicated history with homosexuality. The, The ancient Hindu mythology had holy texts that include third gender characters. And often it, the, the, in the Hindu mythology, they're often shown as men transforming into women. And so everything is very fluid. And many people say that it was, it was more conservative colonizers that came into the country that changed what was maybe a more natural open view to homosexuality here. So there's a lot of debate and a lot of disappointment today. So what is it that stopped them from making that decision to, to move things forward? Well, okay. So first of all, they have basically said that they're they're not in the business or their job is not to make laws. Their job is to rule on laws. And so they rather conveniently sort of uh, bounce the ball back into the court of parliament, which some people are saying that's where it should be. It is the legislators that should be the ones that make legislation. Uh, India, like many countries, has got a a three-form democracy in that it's the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the parliamentarians. And so it's bounced back in their court. But of course, who, who is in charge of the parliamentarians? Who elects them but the voters and the electorate? And while India is uh, progressing in many social mores, there are very strong conservative pockets that are against uh, equal rights to homosexuals. And how loud are these voices that, that you know, talked about the, the pockets of those who disapprove? How loud are, loud are they politically? Well, okay, so so everybody's loud these days thanks to social media. So everything gets amplified. But it was the BJP's uh, lawyer for the government that actually called same-sex marriage an urban and quote-unquote elitist concept and one that is far removed from the social ethos of the country. And that's seen as a big disappointment because we're just on the, the anniversary five years ago of scrapping Article 377 from the Indian Penal Code, which saw the end of criminalizing homosexuality. Um, uh, That was a really big deal, but it's worth remembering, and a lot of activists who are trying to stay positive about this said, hey, let's not forget that took two turns before it was scrapped. So there were two cases, five years in between. So a lot of activists are saying, This is just the beginning. Let's keep fighting. We've got to um, figure out what all the rulings were specifically, all the the subtlety in between the judgments. And um, we're going to keep fighting because these things take time. Lindy Prickett in Delhi. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. 
What kind of city do you want to live in? Every week on The Urbanist, we delve into the biggest questions about urban living and meet the people championing change in our cities. From starchitects to designer sources, protected views to landfills, river walks and sidewalks, wayfinding and cycle highways, the city is alive and kicking. So how can we make them better places to live in? The other great city creation, of course, is sex. Young people go to cities to have a good time and to enjoy themselves and to meet their life partners and maybe a few other people on the way. Join me, Andrew Tuck, every Thursday at 2000 hours London time for a brand new episode. Or subscribe to the podcast and listen as you go. The Urbanist, the show that knows its good mares from its planning nightmares. It's 12.28 here in London. It's Emma Nelson here bringing you the briefing live on Monocle Radio. Finally, let's have a look at what's making the business headlines. Victoria Scholar is Head of Investment at the British stockbroker Interactive Investor. Good afternoon, Victoria. Afternoon. So the, the headlines here in the UK are dominated by the fact that for the first time in two years, wages are outstripping inflation. Yes, that's absolutely right. We've seen that annual growth in regular pay, excluding bonuses, came in at 7.8% between June and August, which is uh, one of the highest growth rates we've seen since comparable records began in 2001. And it is above the headline rate of inflation. Now, when uh, wages outpace inflation, that tends to be good for living standards. It means uh, we can earn more compared to how much things cost. Uh, But we also had some other elements of the labour market report, we saw that uh, job vacancies actually fell in the three months to September. Clearly, businesses are becoming a lot more cautious about their hiring plans, given uh, the macroeconomic storm clouds of elevated inflation and the stream of interest rate hikes we've seen from the Bank of England. So you talk there about companies' caution when it comes to hiring, but where does the confidence come that gives uh, an organisation, a company, the ability to say, yes, we're going to pay you more? Well, I think this is mainly to do with uh, labour shortages in the UK. Essentially, we don't have enough uh, workers to fill the number of jobs that there are. So uh, that tends to give workers more bargaining power when it comes to negotiations with uh, their employers, uh, and therefore they can bid up wages um, much higher. Do we think that there's a longer issue here that when you have people being able to ask for more money, if they don't get it, they move around a bit more quickly. And as a result, you get a bit more of a transient workforce. Yeah, potentially. And I think that we've seen a lot of movement in the workforce and that also tends to uh, exacerbate wage growth. And in turn, that can uh, add to inflation because typically people only really uh, move from job to job if they're going to be able to uh, get a higher salary um, unless there's other circumstances. But typically, one of the key drivers for job changes tends to be the pay. Let's move to a story which is uh, arguably less positive in terms of the security of companies. Uh, Rolls-Royce at the FTSE 100 company is is cutting up to 2,500 jobs. And these are mainly white-collar jobs, aren't they? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It is planning to cut uh, staff, which could potentially equate to about 6% of its workforce. This is part of a major overhaul at the engine maker, uh, spearheaded by its CEO, who took to the helm at the start of the year. 
he previously described the business as a burning platform. But actually, uh, the company appears to be doing really well this year. It's one of the top performers uh, on the stock market, up over 100% uh, this year. And in the summer, it reported really strong underlying earnings. Um, just tell us a little bit more. I need you to do a bit of translation for me, because you, you mentioned the chief executive, Tufan Ergin Bilgic, um, who has who's delivered possibly the most jargon containing statement I've ever seen. It says, this is another step on our multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing, competitive, resilient and growing Rolls-Royce. Please, what does that mean in English? <laughs> I think essentially what he's alluding to is the fact that this is a company that's real, really struggled to rev up investor confidence for a long time. The stock has slid from the highs back in 2014 all the way down to the trough during the pandemic period. Now, he comes from BP and has a lot of experience uh, in the engine space. Um, and there seems to be a lot of investor enthusiasm towards uh, his plans. He's taking some pretty tough uh, measures like cutting jobs, which of course can be uh, pretty difficult from a cultural perspective for a firm. Uh, and also it can mean that there just aren't so many people to fulfill roles. So it can uh, mean that staff have a lot more work to do. Um, but he's taking these really difficult decisions to try and uh, reignite investor confidence. And so far, uh, it appears to be working. Victoria Scholar, thank you as ever for joining us on Monaco Radio. That's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers Lillian Fawcett and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Sarah Nicholl. The Briefing's back tomorrow at the same time, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>